Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, Worship is Warfare, from our audio collection titled, Against Christianity, The Church is Politics. Well, let's thank the Lord. Our Father and gracious God, we're very, um, very grateful to you for all the kindness you show to us. We thank you for the the conference. We thank you for bringing us all here safely. I pray that you'd bless those who are attending from far away, who are traveling, going back home. I pray you give them travel mercies and protections. I pray for those who are staying over for Presbytery. We're grateful for that opportunity as well. And I pray you give us clear minds as we are trying to tie all these things together and, and seeing how they see how they relate. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so... Um, Worship is warfare, and we are going to consider how the worship of the church, which is a different kind of warfare from what um, men have studied in centuries past, is essential to God's purposes for the unfolding of human history uh, up to this point and in the future. One of the central points of the book of Revelation is that the heavenly worship service drives all earthly events. If you just step back and look at the book overall, God is worshipped in heaven, things happen on earth. God is worshipped in heaven, things happen on earth. There, there's a, The driving engine is the adoration of Jesus Christ in the heavenlies, and judgments, blessings, chastisements occur in the earthly realm. It, it takes a peculiar kind of blindness to read the book of Revelation and see anything other than God, uh, the, um, the inexorable victory of Christ's kingdom. Uh, for he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, what's the grounding for that? Well, the grounding for that is in the heavenlies. The grounding for that is in worship. In Hebrews 12, we have come into the heavenly Jerusalem, it says, and by doing so, we are receiving, we are in the process of receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. As we worship God in the heavenlies, in the kingdom that cannot be shaken, we are receiving here a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If we are receiving an earthly inheritance here by heavenly means, we have to be careful as we think about how this translates. You don't want to ever fall into the trap of saying, um, well, because I'm worshiping Jesus Christ, I'm worshiping God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in the heavenly realm. Therefore, that ratifies everything that I was already thinking. All right? If you've got that sort of glib sort of um, imprimatur where you're saying, well, the heaven is signing off on whatever it is that I, uh, my opinions or my uh, convictions or my, uh, my tradition, whatever it is, then that is, that's too glib, that's too... Facile. If we're not being, if we're not being shaped, if we're not being overhauled ourselves by the worship that we're rendering in heaven, then we need to be very wary about trying to overhaul the the rest of the world. How can how can we be telling the world that worship in the heavenlies is transforming the earth and every aspect of the earth except for me? Right. Well, that it doesn't go that way. If we worship in the heavenlies, we should be expected. We should be expecting to be transformed, sanctified individually in our congregations, and then we're proclaiming that uh, to the world. Um, if I, uh, th there's a wonderful theology here, and and there's a, a, a grievous pitfall. If I could quote um, N.T. Wright from his very fine book, "Bringing the Church to the World," uh, it's a very good book. He says. And I agree with this wholeheartedly. He says, And nothing makes and sustains a party within the church nearly so well as a shared ideology that is, in fact, not particularly Christian, but which has learned to use Christian language to give itself legitimacy. So you've got some sort of shared set of assumptions, uh, standard Rush Limbaugh right-wing politics or standard left-wing uh, leftist bromides, whatever. You've got some sort of shared conviction uh, birds of a feather flock together. So in your congregation or in your denomination, those those assumptions are never, ever really seriously challenged. And so everybody shares them together. They all think them together. And it's a Christian setting, so they 
put a bunch of Christian terminology varnish over the top of it. And, and then if someone challenges us, we say, oh, it's a Christian worldview. Right? That's our Christian worldview because we're uh, all using the same language to describe this essentially secular frame of mind. Now, I think Wright is uh, correct, and, th- and I do recommend this book, The Theology, uh, uh, Wright's theology on this particular issue is frequently magnificent. Uh, it's just one of the, it's a very bracing um, book. But periodically, um, he manifests, I think, the very thing he's talking about, because there's nothing, nothing quite so revealing as to listen to a Christian from another part of the country or another part of the world talk about the relevance of the kingdom of God to politics. Um, and to talk about, a, you know, to hear a, um, a conservative evangelical um, um, Englishman talking about these things, when in, in UK terms, um, N.T. Wright is a raving right-wing lunatic, all right? And, and you bring him over to America, and he's just sort of a sort of soft middle, you know, socialist. And you, and you think, what? Uh, um, a couple of years ago, when he was speaking at the Auburn Avenue conference, we had an opportunity for some of us to have, have lunch with him. And we were talking to him about, I, I, we were talking about some of these issues. And I, I said, you know, when you talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things, you have to understand how your books are going to resonate with people in America. You're, you're talking to someone who's from Idaho. We think that gun control means using both hands, right? And, 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 <laughs> And and you're you're saying the lordship of Jesus Christ is this well, it this is going to translate in different ways, all right. So whenever whenever Wright makes an occasional foray into public policy proposals, he starts talking about the World Bank and forgiving third world debts and that sort of thing. And when we hear uh, like the older Reconstructionists and people like that, when they're applying the lordship of Jesus Christ to politics, it translates, it shakes out or cashes out in a very different way. Everybody needs to be careful uh, with this. Everybody needs to be careful. It's the old joke of two ministers talking. Now, you know, we both serve God, you in your way and I in his. And uh, 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 so you say, well, okay, if, if it were only that simple. So when Wright comes to da- when Wright comes down to it to various policy proposals, he frequently gives us, and this is good for us to actually read, because he frequently gives us something other than the Fox News Jesus to which we conservative American Christians uh, have become accustomed. But uh, speaking in all honesty, his tendency is to give us the CNN Jesus instead of the Fox News Jesus, and it's not as easy to get out of the right-left dualism as just simply naming the right-left dualism. It's not that easy. Um, because I believe that there's no one more convinced that he's not thinking in right-left categories than N.T. Wright, but when I listen to Englishmen talk about politics, that's the first. it hits me in the face like opening a, a hot oven. You know, All I can see is this leftism. And, I, and I'm sure that uh, they have similar sensations when they hear uh, American Christians talk. Uh, in, in other words, we need to be careful not to be provincial uh, in our policy proposals. We need to get out more. We need to think it through more carefully. And we need to have uh, a willingness to debate some of these issues and engage and say, yeah, but what about, and ask hard questions. Raise hard questions uh, and raise hard counter questions. But the theology of the thing is central, and that's what I want to press uh, uh, press this morning. Um, briefly, most of us pray the Lord's Prayer in the course of our liturgy, as I think we ought to. But there are things in there that we tend to glide right over. Uh, whenever, I don't know if you've ever, uh, here in Moscow, I've driven to Coeur d'Alene, I don't know how many times, and, and, uh, and in order to drive to Coeur d'Alene, there's only, there's, you're on the highway and, and you've got to go through Tensid, right? But there have been times when I've been driving to Coeur d'Alene and I realize I don't remember Tensid at all. Right? And I know I'm north of Tensid. I know I saw Tensid. I know I was there. I, I, I don't have any doubt that I was there, but I don't remember, don't remember seeing it at all. One time I was driving across Moscow uh, on a route that I'd driven almost daily for years, and I looked over to the left and saw a building, an old building, that I'd never seen before in my life. And this was after 
many years. You may have had that sensation in, a, in Romans. Right? <laughs> You're reading through Romans, and you look at a verse, and you say, why wasn't I informed that this was here? <laughs> why didn't anybody tell me this was here? I ought to have known. I've preached through Romans before. Well, there are things in the Lord's Prayer that we just scoot right by. We just glide right over. Like, like that phrase where we ask God to treat us the same way that we treat others who owe us big time. Right? All right. God, who's, who's a stinker in my life? All right, this is part of our liturgy. The minister says, let us worship the triune God. Yes, amen. All of you, think of the stinker in your life. Right? The stinker. I mean, the big stinker in your life. The one who's really screwing you. Now, God, treat me the way I think of him. And all God's people said, yikes. <laughs> I, can't, I can't ask for that. Um, well, but Jesus tells us. He, he puts it right in the prayer, and, and it's a well-worn groove, and we go, our Father who art in heaven. We rattle off our paternosters like the Roman Catholics do. Our Father who art in heaven. But there's some inflammatory stuff in there. Uh, another inflammatory portion of the Lord's Prayer, which I mentioned the other day, is the fact that we pray for the Lord's kingdom to come. We're not praying for the Lord's kingdom to go. We're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven when we get there. But that's not what it says. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit heaven when they get there. No. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We're praying for God's kingdom to arrive. We're praying, praying for God's kingdom to be manifested in, in, in increasingly potent ways. We're not praying for God's kingdom to go. We're not praying. We're, the world is not God's Vietnam. We're not waiting to be helicoptered out of Saigon. This is not what's going on. We're praying. We, we are God's outposts, entrenchments. The invasion has begun. And we're praying for the kingdom to be increasingly manifested. And we do this every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Hallowing the Lord's name, hallowing God's name, is something that we do when we worship him. When we're worshiping God, we're hallowing his name, reverencing his name. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. All right, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is this a request that we would all learn instant obedience? And I used to think this, and I don't, I don't dispute it. Uh, I think it's still true. We should obey right away. As my father taught us when we were little kids, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So instant obedience is good. Obeying right away with alacrity is a good thing. But is this a request, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Are we saying that we would, be, that we would become as obedient as the angels currently are? So when God wants something done in heaven, are the angels scurrying right away and obeying instantaneously? And, Lord, teach us to be obedient uh, that way here on earth. Well, I think there's an element of truth in that. I think that that's true. We should be praying for that kind of instant obedience. But are we asking that we would hop to the same way the angels hop to when they are asked to do something? I think there's more to it than that. We hallow God's name. We glorify the name of Jesus Christ in heaven in our worship. Now, Back to the book of Revelation, back to Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, when the minister gives the call to worship, God's people assemble in the name of Jesus Christ. The call to worship, different denominations, different traditions, inaugurate the uh, worship service by different means. In our worship service, I say, let us worship the triune God. And when those words are spoken, the roof of the church opens... The power of the Holy Spirit descends on the congregation. We are ushered into the heavenly places. We worship God. We worship God through Christ in the heavenly places. Because in Hebrews 12, it says, You have come to a mountain that cannot be touched. You've come to the heavenly Zion. Well, how do I come there? In Ephesians, the Ephesians are in two places. They're in Ephesus, right? To the saints who are in Christ Jesus in Ephesus. They're in Ephesus, and they're in Christ. All right, so it, when the saints gather in Ephesus, they are gathering in Christ. The words of uh, the call to worship is issued, and the Holy Spirit escorts us, lifts us up in the, into the heavenly places. So, when we are lifted up into the heavenly places, what do we do there? 
Well, our job is to worship God. Let us worship the triune God. And we are doing so, incidentally, when we, there are a number of edifying uh, rabbit trails we can run down. When, when we're escorted into the heavenly realms, it's not just our church, right? As the, as the worship services sweep over the globe, all God's people are ascending into the heavenly places. And, and God doesn't have us sorted out before his throne. Okay, Baptists over there, Presbyterians over there. Uh, if you need to face inward to pretend you're the only, only ones here, um, then go ahead. It's, it's not like that. He doesn't, we're all before the throne of God, all of us, and we're worshiping God through Jesus Christ. Now, when we hallow God's name, we're hallowing God's name through Jesus in the heavenly places, in heaven. Now, when that is done, we should turn around and ask God to do, in the Lord's Prayer, to ask God to do on earth what was just done in heaven. Right? What did, what did we just do in heaven? We glorified the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what are we asking God to do on earth? Glorify the name of Jesus Christ. That's the transaction. And that's how you go back to the book of Revelation, where we ascended in the heavenlies, God is worshipped in heaven, and that drives earthly events. We glorify Jesus' name in heaven, and we ask God to glorify Christ's name on earth. So flip it around, and we can see some of, the, some of our problems. Given our anemic worship or and our anemic doctrine of worship, we should not be surprised when Jesus is not honored on earth the way we would love to see him honored on earth. Why should he be honored here on earth? The world might ask the church, slightly puzzled. You don't honor him in heaven. We, and, and we have the privilege on a weekly basis of ascending, ascending into heavenly places. We go to heaven once a week. Right? On the Lord's day, we ascend into heaven. We, we don't come to a mountain that can be touched. We have an opportunity, a glorious opportunity, to spend an hour, two hours in the presence of God and all the other saints, worshiping God in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then asking God to do on earth what we just did there. And when he answers us according to our faith, right, and we don't like the answer, well, that may be grounded in how we're approaching our worship service. Do we understand our worship service in a robust sort of way? And by robust, I don't mean physical enthusiasm, although that's part of it. By robust, I mean faith, all right, where, where we're doing a particular thing, knowing what we do, and we're offering it up to God, saying, God, this is what your word requires. Please bless it. All right, now, let's take this, make this a, give this a political turn. Those who want the American empire... The, or whether you say the established American empire, which some, some writers have seen developing since the early 20th century, I would be in that group. I would say uh, the American empire began to seriously expand um, uh, in the early 20th century. Historian, uh, and, and there's a sort of a mythology about this where Americans are, uh, you know, the reluctant empire. Well, these, these sorts of things it just happened to us. Um, the historian Charles Beard said that empires are not built in fits of absent-mindedness. Um, the, these things don't happen accidentally. Those who want and and, and let's uh, a Christian a thoughtful Christian response should always be: It's not that simple. Uh, uh, empires are not bad, right? Necessarily, empires can be very very wicked in an empire-like way, and they can have beneficial. Uh, 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 blessing in an empire-like way, whether it's Pax Romana um, that the Apostle Paul used to establish churches all all over the place, or um, uh, the British Empire, a very similar um, pattern developed there. A lot of the places where the church is solidly planted in the world today is because the missionaries followed um, followed uh, the East India uh, Company, and they planted churches there, and, and Roland Alland wrote a book a, a number of decades ago, many decades ago, uh, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, in which he said that Christians need to be shrewd about things like empire. They, they can't be breathing into a paper bag all hysterical about pagans doing what they're doing. At the same time, they can't become cheerleaders for empire as though this is the kingdom of God. Right? You, you, you want to make sure that you don't get confused that way. Well, there are some people and some Christians who want the American empire to behave itself, and yet they have an allergic reaction to every form of Constantinianism, every form of 
um, oh, church, we've got to keep church state separate. We can't have the authority of Jesus Christ here. We've got to have a pagan, we've got to have a secular empire. And, and furthermore, we want this secular pagan empire to behave as though it were a Christian empire, but just not admit that they're a Christian empire. Well, I've got news for you. It's not going to happen. Pagans will always act like pagans. Right? Pagans will always act like pagans. Pagans will always do what pagans will do. So as much as the critics of Constantinianism like to pretend otherwise, these anti-Constantinians don't really believe in speaking truth to power. They believe in speaking limp nostrums to power or cheesy bromides to power or sentimental cliches to power. And power laughs and does what it wants. All right? Why should they listen to that? The pagans running the show will behave as pagans always have. Right? The, the pagans running the show will behave the way pagans always do until and unless they submit to the saving and authoritative grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, rebuking them in the name of secular democracy is not going to cut it. They, they don't care. And this is why we need to, as we think through these issues in a Trinitarian way, this is why we have to laugh when, when the leftists get uh, all worked up, as they do. The Bush, the Bush haters are really something. They get wound, they go off like a bottle rocket. You know, you just mentioned Bush, and and we say, ho, ho, ho. But then, watch, <laughs> sometimes it's fun to just mention it. Just, just to, But then, all you have to do is get a bunch of right-wingers and do the same thing to them with Hillary. All right. President Hillary, what do you think? <laughs> bottle rockets. Well, the leftists are hysterical about Bush. The right-wingers are his hysterical about the Clintons or whoever, you know, fast forward another 20 years, whoever it is. Um, the Lord in heaven laughs. Right? The Lord in heaven laughs. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. And God thinks it's funny. God thinks it's funny. And so we should think it's funny. And we can be engaged and involved and be, do, be doing the responsible thing as best we see it. But we want to have a divine perspective informed by our worship. Right? And we're not going to and put this another way. We're not going to have that heavenly perspective, that divine perspective, unless we're self-consciously going to heaven once a week and getting our perspective straightened out. Right? We have to get it straightened out, and we have to get it straightened out regularly. Now, when we talk about American empire, we're not just simply talking about expansionism and markets and all of that. There's something much bigger than America going on. This is not, um, uh, in, in many respects, I think this is a Western ph phenomenon, not, uh, not a quintessentially American phenomenon. A, a, good, a very good book I recommend highly is Victor David Hansen's book, Carnage and Culture, um, which talks about, it says basically Westerners are particularly good at fighting and and have done accomplished an awful lot destructively and constructively by by that means carnage and culture it's a very good book and it's not and i don't think what's going on the dynamic here is i don't think is unique to americans the current the current contemporary american mojo is something that the brits had a couple hundred years ago we didn't have and they did have this pattern this recurring pattern is as old as dirt right this is this is what people do this is what non-believers do and christians have to figure out how to interact with um, uh, nations that are being kicked around and nations that are uh, like jeshuan they waxed fat and kicked now the the broader issue beyond american empire i think is the enlightenment modernity all right what is the what is the cultural apparatus what is the political apparatus of modernity uh, if we say, if we, if we want a date to hang our hat on uh, again, let's say the the mid 1600s, you you could go with the with the um, with Descartes, or you could begin in the mid 1700s where the Enlightenment really became noticeable. It showed up on the showed up on the map, but this uh, the Enlightenment and modernity as a worldview, as an ideology, and as a self conscious replacement of the older order of Christendom, the, a self-conscious replacement of the public square. All right, get, get that stuff out of the public square. We're going to put secular enlightenment thought in the public square. We're going to declare neutrality. We're going to get rid of all these wars of religion. There, we've done it. That secular faith 
that has is now basically thoroughly uh, entrenched in the nations of the West has a cultural body. It has a cultural manifestation. Now, this has to do with some of the the currents, recent currents about postmodernism. I have in the past advanced an argument against what is called postmodernism, and I believe that this argument is a real pippin. I think it's a good one. But thus far, I've not had anyone really attempt to engage with this argument, and this is either because the argument is beneath contempt, and it would sully the minds of philosophers to even attempt to throw it away, or, and this is my opinion, (laughs) surprise, um, it's a devastating argument for anyone, particularly Christians, who've been manning the pom-poms on on behalf of emergent postmodernism. There are a lot of uh, Christians who are fond of the latest thing. They just... um, and, the, and that, incidentally, is the evangelical tradition. Uh, evangelicals don't like uh, tradition. Uh, as the Baptist preacher once said, we, we Baptists don't believe in tradition. It's contrary to our historic position. And, <laughs> well, evangelicals don't believe in tradition either. That's their tradition. Right? So every 20 or 30 years, there's a new move of the Spirit, um, which is, okay, right on schedule. Right? Um, you've got these waves of the new thing, the latest thing, the current thing, the cutting-edge thing. And the, in my view, the emergent church, the, the pe- thinkers dallying with postmodernism, is, that's just the same old, uh, same old, same old. Now, here's the problem. Here's, here's my argument in short form. Modernity, uh, the, the ideology of modernity, has a political and civic expression or manifestation. That manifestation is Western liberal democracy. All right? West, Western liberal democracy, the whole setup, all right, that is the cultural manifestation of modernity. Any form of postmodernism, any form of postmodernity that does not challenge that embodied manifestation is not really being post anything. Okay, it's just a little sideshow within this Western liberal democracy. I've read a, I've read a wheelbarrow full of these postmodern guys, and when I read through their stuff, the thing that's striking is how little they they challenge the established way of doing things. All right, they they say we've got this big university of modernity, and let's do a postmodern thing. Let's move our classroom down the hall. Right. <laughs> Right. So modernity is this big thing. Nobody's saying let's tear down the university. Let's just let's let's change classrooms and not tell anybody. Oh. <laughs> you know? And they think they're being radical and um, well, Muslim fundamentalists who advocate the imposition of Sharia law are therefore postmodern. Right? Radical fundamentalist Muslims are both in some respects pre-modern and in other respects post-modern because what they are doing effectively challenges the whole deal top to bottom. Right? Not just the ideology but the cultural externalization of the whole thing. Um, Sharia law fundamentalists are post-modern and Brian McLaren isn't at all. He's not even close to being post-modern. For those, um, for those who have the time and interest I'd encourage you to go back and read Francis Fukuyama's essay, The End of History. In it, he makes very clear the fact that modernity enculturated is Western liberal democracy. I, I think this is indisputable. Western liberal democracies, that, that is the cultural form that modernity has, uh, the, uh, the cultural shape that uh, modernity has taken. Uh, Henry Van Til, this is, this is a little simplistically stated, but I think you get the, uh, the drift of this. Henry Van Til argued that culture is religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. Your basic faith is going to, in in this world, the way God made us, your basic faith is going to take an external form. And the basic faith of modernity has taken a cultural form, and that cultural form is what we've been living in since the mid-18th century, before the rise of American power, um, during the heyday of British power. That that thing has shaped all our... Um, political um, patterns, our political uh, practices. Now, that means there's no way to be postmodern, genuinely postmodern, without being post the whole thing. Okay, you can't be postmodern without being post the whole thing. 
To believe otherwise would be comparable to looking at post-Christian Europe with the expectation that despite the faith dissolving, the cathedral building is going to carry on as robust as ever. You can't have faith, uh, you can't have faith in, in Christ evaporate. Uh, if, if faith in Christ evaporates, you can't even get people to come to the existing cathedrals, still less to build one, you know, to, to build one. Or to, the, the cultural manifestation of the, the great era of cathedral building was when the Christian faith was vibrant, it was active. It was they, People really believed what they believed. If they don't believe it anymore, they're not going to act like they believe it anymore. Right? Now, here's the problem. Liberal democracies, liberal democracies were built when modernity believed in itself. Modernity had a, a robust, lively faith. It was an idol, but they believed in themselves, and that's why they had uh, this capacity to, to form and shape a culture. We have... We've entered into this, what people are calling a postmodern um, phase, but this postmodern phase is really just a modernity, a, a, sort of a crisis of faith on the part of modernists. It's not really postmodern. They, they just don't have the, they, they don't know what they're doing here anymore. If you don't believe in what you're doing, you can't continue to do it. Right? And if you don't believe in what you're doing, you can't defend it against people who are challenging it from the outside. And the postmodernists, however they pose and posture, are not challenging anything fundamental. Right? They're not doing that at all. Think about, think about this for a minute. When the Soviet Union was collapsing, when the Soviet Union was coming down, and I remember uh, reading an article in National Review before the Soviet Union toppled, toppled and they, they wrote this article predicting that it would. And I remember how crazy that seemed at the time, how, how monolithic the Soviet empire appeared and how they, you know, they were saying uh, the Soviet Union is going to blow apart, which it, it did. But notice, I, I want you to notice what failure of faith will do in an idolatrous system like that. And I don't want you to look at nukes, throw weight, armies. Any, that's not the issue. The issue is faith. When you get to a certain point, do you remember when Yeltsin faced down um, the Soviet Empire and he was holed up in a house? Right now, here's this empire with all kinds of nukes, armies, countries, and a guy in a house. <laughs> now, and and they had this eyeball to eyeball showdown. And I'm not saying that Yeltsin's a great, or he you know he he had his issues too, but still, at the end of the day, he was a guy in a house. Right? And this superpower, when you lose your faith, it's gone. Right? If you, if you, you can have all the power in the world. You can have all the econo economic power in the world. You can have all the throw weight in the world. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can't do it. All right? And that's, this, that's the kind of um, thing that happened there. The, Soviet, the Marxist experiment no longer believed in itself. They, they, they didn't believe their own propaganda anymore, and they couldn't stand up to a guy in a house. And this should uh, take us back to our worship services. If, if our people in our worship services know what they believe and why, and they know where they're going and what they're doing, we're operating in the middle of this system where liberal secu secular democracies are having a failure of faith, and they don't know what to think anymore, and, they, and they're just rearranging the furniture trying to fix things. Well, um, it's not going to work for them. What Fukuyama means by the end of history, in the, in the title of his essay, is, quote, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. That's quite a realized eschatology for a secularist, right? This is the final, Western liberal democracies are the pinnacle of all, uh, all arrangements that people have ever been able to come up with. We've gotten to the end. And, and there's no more history. He didn't say people wouldn't be born or make things or whatever, but he, in terms of the transformation of our forms of culture and political things, he says we're at the, we're at the peak. Of t we're at the top of the mountain. We've, we've arrived. We've gotten there. And there's no more after that. Any movement, he argues, which does not abandon um, this pluralism, Cannot, uh, excuse me, not, not him. Any movement which does not abandon this pluralism cannot be called genuinely postmodern. If, if that's the ultimate pinnacle of modernity, 
and that's it, and we're not going any further than that. Unless you challenge Fukuyama's structure from top to bottom, you, you can't call it postmodern. Fukuyama asks, if we admit for the moment that the fascist and communist challenges to liberalism are dead, and by liberalism he doesn't mean Democratic Party, he means the, um, the, secular, democracy, the secular democracies, to liberalism are dead, are there any other ideological competitors left? Or put another way, are there any contradictions in liberal society beyond that of class that are not resolvable? Two possibilities suggest themselves, those of religion and nationalism. And then he just, but he just glides right by that. He says, okay, on paper, nationalism might be a trouble. On paper, religion might be a trouble. But no, liberal democracy has arrived. And he does, in this essay, he had, says, and this despite the fact that we admit that we can't answer any of the basic questions that a bright sophomore might raise in class about it. We don't have any answers to that, but nevertheless, we've arrived. In my view, Fukuyama's dismissal of religion as a contender uh, for this position was remarkably short-sighted for an essay filled with such trenchant observations. If we are to turn away from modernity in a true postmodern move, then I believe that we have a basic choice of visions, Achmanidijads or Lighthearts. All right? Basically, if you want to if you want to talk postmodernism, look at history, look at the map, and think for a minute. It's postmodernism. If there's going to be a postmodern anything that encompasses the world, the way secular liberal democracy has encompassed the world as sort of the standard. There are places that that don't conform to that and they don't practice that, but that's sort of the assumption that everybody has that we ought to be like that. Right? If there's any contender to replace that, it will either be Islam or the Christian faith. Buddhism is not going to do, you know, Buddhism is not going to do it. Judaism is not going to do it. Hinduism is not going to do it. It's either going to be Islam or the Christian faith. It's either going to be Christendom or the house of submission, the house of Islam. Those are the only two options if we're going to talk about post-modern, right? Or if you say, but that, no, the uh, uh, secular democracies are unquestionable. You know, th those are sacrosanct. We can't touch those. They're not going away because we've arrived at the pinnacle of human history. Then you're with Fukuyama. You're saying, okay, we're, God has gotten to us to the, the realize that in, in terms of political development, the eschaton is realized. But no one who has a Bible can sign off on that. We pray every week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, uh, you might say, well, look, I don't think the Muslims are a grave threat um, uh, because, the, you know, they're poor and they're, yeah, they're, they're poor, ragtag, um, despite, by poor, I mean not wealthy. They don't have, the, Saudi, Saudi Arabia has a great wealth, but they don't have means of production, right? When the oil drips dry, they're back to the tents. They... Um, and and so there is. It's I make a distinction between wealth and riches. You can be really rich for a time, um, and and not be wealthy. Wealth is is the capacity to reproduce itself and means of production and, and that sort of thing. Um, the Islamic world is poor. It doesn't have power, authority, economic throw. It doesn't. It doesn't have any of that stuff. But as Mark Stein once pointed out, when, when someone pointed out that when you come right down to it, suicide bombing is a pitiful weapon, right? It's, it's, it's just pitiful. What is it to blow up a delicatessen, right? That's, that's what a rinky-dink sort of thing to do. Um, but Stein points out capably, he said, suicide bombing is not a potent weapon at all. He said, unless it's deployed against a suicide culture. Right? If it's deployed against a suicide culture and you're dealing with people who wake up in the morning knowing what they believe, which they do, right? they wake up in the morning knowing what they believe, and you're coming against people who don't know what they believe at all in particular about anything, there is a real uh, clash. And fundamentally, I believe the issue is babies, not box cutters. The issue is um, having kids, grandkids, bringing the kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And this is why uh, one of the first places when we, when we worship 
when we worship God in the heavenly places, and then we say, okay, what sort of difference can we make? How can we establish the new polis? Right? Well, go, go home and make love to your wife. Bring your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Give them the Christian education. Build a community. Right? Um, th- this is what we're called to do. Now, I want to argue as we step back and look at the big picture, the only genuine postmodernism possible is theocratic postmillennialism. This is not a cute debating uh, trick. It's a serious point, and I believe it's easier to dismiss with a secularized and nonchalant laugh than it is to actually answer. True postmodernism is not possible until the the Western secular system goes down and is replaced by something completely different. And it's either going to be, in my view, either going to be Islam or Christendom. True postmodernism is not possible, therefore, until all the so-called postmodernists are dead or out of the picture. They're not representing anything that's postmodern to speak of. So the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, applies, refers to the rule and realm of Jesus Christ, which, of course, encompasses all things. And as good as this sounds on paper, we can get all... We can get our Kyperian blood flowing. You know, Jesus is Lord over everything. It's true, he is. But as good as this sounds on paper, the potential applications can start making us more than a little bit nervous. Those who talk about some kind of actualized kingdom sometimes frighten their Christian brothers and sisters with visions of evangelical ayatollahs with ZZ top beards. Uh, trying Trying to find a witch with a Ouija board to burn. So... So you guys, so you want to set up Geneva again? You want to burn Servetus again, eh? That, you know, one Servetus was not enough for you guys. Uh, well, again, it's not so simple. Um, it's easy, that sort of thing is easy to caricature, and this goes back to the story I was talking about yesterday, where when, when we proclaim in our liturgy and our gospel preaching that Christ is Lord of the nations, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords here, the kingdoms of uh, the... the the kingdoms of this world had become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ here. Right, that's what we're talking about. It's very easy to spook people with, with stories, um, sometimes dredged out of history where some Christian did an appalling thing, or sometimes just made-up stories where Christians are accused of doing things they never thought of doing. That's too easy. Um, but the opposite of this, you know, the, with the weird beards, opposition to the Christian uh, Ayatollahs with weird beards, uh, the opposite is no better. To claim the authority of Jesus Christ, uh, to claim that it's always invisible, it's always heavenly, it's always mystically, somehow, vaporously, mysteriously within, is no better than refried Gnosticism. Jesus Christ is Lord, not only of spiritual things, but also of kings, presidents, art galleries, roly-poly bugs, seraphim, buttercup schools, and everything in between. Jesus Christ is Lord of all of it. He bought it with his blood. He bought the world. He saved the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he is the Savior of the world, the Bible says. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What is Jesus trying to do here? Well, it seems to me he's the Savior of the world. Now, if he's the Savior of the world, then shouldn't he save the world? (laughs) Right? Seems I'm kind of simplistic, but it seems to me that saviors save. The, neo- the neo-gnostic option wants to assert that Jesus Christ is technically Lord of all things, but this does not make any visible difference in the earthly realm, the realm of matter, stuff. Uh, so on the one hand, you've got the retreatists, the escapists. They, they go into the worship service to close the doors. It's like the disciples in the upper room. Right? Let's... Uh, let's go into the upper room, lock the doors so that we won't be found, so that we can conduct our secret communications with heaven, rather than gathering in a room that will keep the rain off and at the same time enable us to ascend into the heavenly places and begin exercising our authority as kings and priests in the world by means of worship. So there's some who say, yeah, Jesus is technically Lord. He's technically, he's Lord of the church or he's Lord of my heart or he's you know, somehow, some way. But then on the other hand, our activist brethren, there are, ret- there are retreatists on the one hand, let's run, run away, run away, that's a strategy, and then 
There are those who want to enter into the realm of politics, which is not bad. Remember what we've been saying through this whole conference. We need people doing that. But there's a certain way of doing it, right? There's a certain way of doing it where you're trusting in your yard signs. You're trusting in the petition. You're trusting in your candidate. It's, it's like insurance or bank accounts. It's not sin to have a bank account, but it's a sin to trust in it. It's not a sin to have insurance, but it is a sin to trust in it. It's not a sin to be engaged politically. You should be engaged politically, and you should have some money in the bank, and you should have an uh, insurance policy, but you shouldn't trust in it. Right? Uh, you shouldn't give yourself away to it in some idolatrous way. And there are some people in our midst who want to storm City Hall and send lobbyists down to the, the fair district of Columbia in order to quote-unquote make a difference. But to use an illustration of Mencken's to try to reform politics this way is like trying to reform prostitution by staffing all the brothels with virgins. It doesn't work. And we need to realize that we're doing something wrong here because uh, we're uh, debauching our daughters. We're not reforming anything. There's another way. There's a third way. And this third way, notice, um, this third way doesn't retreat from the public sphere. It doesn't retreat from education, doesn't retreat from art and culture. You're engaged in it, but that um, engagement is driven and informed by your weekly worship. That's what's happening. So in other words, you go into battle. Another way of putting this is don't don't run to Washington or Olympia or Boise or your provincial capital or state capital. Don't run down there with your guns with no ammo. Go there. Or yes, by all means, go. Be engaged. But get your ammo on the Lord's Day. Um, Worship God in such a way that the potency of what you're doing in your vocation is potency that's informed, driven by, dependent on worship. All right? Now, this is why the, the third way is to understand the centrality of, the potency of, true worship. Uh, and by this, and, and, and I know that there's a, there's a caricature of this view, and sometimes I'm afraid it's not really a caricature. It's just an ac- accurate description. If you care as I do, I care deeply about liturgy, and I care a lot about what we're doing, when we're doing it, and, and how can we ground this in the scriptures and so forth. But there's a way of becoming a liturgist that is um, tr- reduces the whole thing to a big paint-by-numbers kit. Um, okay, let's... let's uh, Let's do this, and then do this, and we become fussers, right? Liturgical fussers. Um, and then there are other people who don't like the liturgical fussers, so they have this um, uh, painting school of thought in liturgics that's abstract expressionism, right? Let's just throw paint on the canvas however we feel like would love Jesus the best today. And so you have abstract expressionism, and then you have the paint-by-numbers fussers. Um, What I'm arguing for is real painting with real verve, real love, a robust love of the thing you're painting and the the craft of painting, Um, and you really believe that this is something that pleases God, and when you paint this picture, you offer it to him, and he receives it because of Jesus, and uh, it's covered in his righteousness we're not we're not saying we are perfect painters but god receives it because we're offering it to him in faith i'm reminded of uh, one time david hume the famous skeptic was getting dressed hurriedly getting dressed because he wanted to go hear george whitfield preach and someone said what are you you know what are you doing you don't believe anything he's saying and hume said no i don't but he does Right? Now, that's what I'm talking about. Where we gather in the room, we believe that we're not just gathering in a room. We believe that we're being escorted by the Holy Spirit up into the heavenly places. And what we do in worship makes a difference down the street from our church. Right? The following week. Right? It makes a difference. Right, so, the worship of the church, rightly understood, is warfare. And this is, incidentally, there's another aspect to this. And don't, don't ever take... When, when you... Um, there are certain scriptural illustrations which if you, if you take one illustration and you absolutize it, you run into heresy. And then if you take the opposite one, you absolutize it, you run into heresy. Uh, we should understand these things hebraically, layer the illustrations. The church corporately is a, bride, is a bride adorned for the bridegroom. That's not a militant image. Right? That's a celebratory image. Um, Christ is masculine, we are feminine. Right? That's one image. And that's, 
valuable and to be preserved and emphasized. But the church militant, there there are many um, images in Scripture of the militancy of the church, the warfare of the church. And this is why we need liturgists, worship leaders, people who are involved in putting the worship service together who are masculine. Right? This is why, and, and incidentally, this is why the ordination of women is such a big deal. It's not a trivial thing. It's a big, big deal. Um, and this is also why some of our brethren in the liturgical uh, renewal movement need to, need to think for a minute. Uh, I forget who mentioned yesterday the third sex, you know, men, women, and clergymen. Um, <laughs> and that taunt stings for a reason. Right? There are centuries of that. Let's let's get into liturgy. Someone says, and uh, we need a we need a boys choir. Let's let's get some boys and make them sing in a high voice and put frilly robes on them. What could go wrong? <laughs> and I'm not kidding, right? So all sorts of things can go wrong. Um, the worship the, the worship of the church is largely effeminate today. I, I don't have any problem with saying that the bride ought to be feminine, the church corporately ought to be feminine, as, as we're considering one of the images in Scripture. But there's another important image of spiritual warfare which requires men of battle in the pulpit. And if you, if you have um, pretty boys in the, in the pulpit, and you've had pretty boys in the pulpit for over a century, and all your definitions of piety are feminine, Right? In the evangelical world, what does true piety look like? It looks like the sweetest girl you know. Right? If that's what piety is, and that's what we've enthroned as the definition of piety, and who should be the most pious, visibly pious person in the church? Well, the preacher. Right? And so we hold that, him to that standard, and if he gets in the pulpit and misbehaves, you know, acts like a guy in the pulpit, uh, you know. I don't, I don't know. But then it, the logic of this will catch up with this after a while. You know why? Because try as we might, guys are not very good at being women. <laughs> In fact, I would go so far as to say we stink at that. And if you want effeminacy in the pulpit, you need to get a pro in there. You need to get a real girl. Right? It's, I, you know... After you get tired of pretty boys after a while, and so let's, I'd rather look at a pretty girl than a pretty boy. So, and that's why the ordination of women, that, the, that, pressure, uh, that pressure is astonishingly strong across the evangelical spectrum. And it's not because the texts in the New Testament are unclear. The pressure is there because of all the antecedent things that we've sort of capitulated to, that we've said, okay, 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 all our values are, all our pious values are feminine and we're going to try to have guys do it. Well, no. We, we're in a war. We're in a hot war. The, the, our weapons are not carnal, but our weapons are weapons, and there's a, uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We want, to bring, we want to conquer the citadels of unbelief. All of this is done by worship, and, and God requires masculine leadership in order to accomplish this. So, the worship of this church, rightly understood, is warfare. It's a mode of battle which unbelief has no effective way of resisting if it's deployed. And this is because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. This is what our weapons do, and they do not just do this on paper. Right? This is what our weapons do. And you can't just say, yeah, huh, if they're deployed, and they're deployed in worship, and we fire them in worship, uh, what faith does is expects a subsequent explosion. Right? If you believe that this is what's going on, you're going to expect it to start to impact your surrounding community. They don't just do this on paper. So th- in order to have people who see this and put it together, you're going to have to have some sort of liturgical masculinity. Liturgical masculinity. When the history of redemption is finally and completely written, we will find that the world was conquered in the name of Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit empowering words, water, bread, and wine. Those are our weapons. Words, water, bread, and wine. 
God gathers 12 fishermen, 12, 12 blue-collar workers, mostly fishermen. He says, okay, here's the message. Here's the bread. You can, you can find water wherever you go. Here's, here's the wine. There's the world. Go. Now, what kind of insanity is that? Didn't Jesus just tell them to charge hell with a bucket of water? Yeah, he did. And look where we are 2,000 years from now. And uh, 2,000 years from that time. Well, and, and, and we're doing that with our theology all screwed up. <laughs> what would it look like if we started getting our act together? The, the Holy Spirit empowers the gospel, words, water, the waters of baptism, bread and wine. The church functioning as the church, in her identity as the church, will in her meekness inherit the earth. This does not happen through law, but through the righteousness of faith, as it says in Romans 4.13. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1.22 and 23. God receives all glory through Christ Jesus throughout all human history, world without end, and he does so in the church. Right? That's his plan, right? His plan. He said, okay, I've got some people got some water this is the message here's the bread and wine I want you to start assembling this way with these instructions I want you to disciple the nations baptizing them teaching them obedience to everything that's what I want you to do and for many many centuries Christians have been crazy enough to go do that to go try it and it's potent there's no way um, everything belongs to us all things are ours, the New Testament tells us. All things are ours. It belongs to us, the church, and this includes the world, life, death, the present, and the future. As it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are to, are to disciple the nations. The title deed to the world is in the hand of Jesus. Right? The title deed to the world Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth to your possession, the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ is the King of the world. Jesus Christ is the God of this world. Jesus Christ owns it all. So we are to disciple the nations. The title deed to the world is in his hand, but the hand of Jesus Christ is part of his body, right? And who is his body? We are his body. God gave Canaan to Abraham. But the sons of Abraham had to go in and take it. In the same way, God has given all the nations to men and, uh, of men to Christ in, as his inheritance, and Christians are called to manifest the reality of that reign in the world. This process of conquest does not make the world Christ's. This conquest is accomplished by declaring to the world that the world already belongs to Jesus. The nations, and, and you can't make that declaration unless you believe it, right? And if you, make, if you believe it, and you make that declaration evangelistically, and you make that declaration to God's people in faith in the worship service, that is what God uses. The nations are discipled through being told that the authority of Jesus already includes them. They are then baptized and instructed in obedience in terms of that baptism. So the world is not conquered with a sword. The instruments of conquest, the weapons of our warfare, are word and sacrament. The worship of the church is not a religious meeting in a room with the assembled seeking to escape from the world outside. Nor is the church an army organized along the same lines as, that, as those used by the benefactors of the Gentiles. We have a battering ram about which the lords and princes of this world know nothing, and every Lord's Day we are privileged to take another swing at the gates of unbelief with that battering ram. And we must do so in faith. Right? We, we must do so in faith. We don't, know, we don't have faith in... All, you know, the Israelites marching around Jericho may not have known exactly what was going to happen. They may have had debates in the ranks about what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> is it going to blow up? Is it going to fall in a hole? What, what's it going to do? Um, we, we don't know how it's going to look, but we know that God has given them into our hands for their salvation. We do this as we sit down at the table which he has prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. The church hearing the word preached is the church hearing the terms of conquest. The church at the Lord's table is the church ruling. The church at the Lord's table is the church ruling. Luke 22. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
When the church eats together as the church, the church is eating at a royal council. It's a royal banquet, and the Lord Jesus is taking advice from his counselors and his people, and we are ruling as we gather for the Lord's table. This is because he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, Revelation 1.6. We are not kings and priests in the same way that a middle-aged businessman is the poobah of some fraternal order or other or some service organization. Nor are we kings and priests in the way that earthly rulers with what we call real physical power are kings and priests. We are kings and priests by virtue of our identity with Jesus Christ, our inclusion in him, and he is the great king, he is the only priest. And this is why our weapons are not carnal, and this is also why there are absolutely no countermeasures. This cannot be stopped. There's no way to come against it. The only way to come against it is by lying to us and getting us to quit doing this. Right? If, the, if we can be lied to and be persuaded by uh, different theologies or different traditions or fears or whatever, if we can be persuaded to put this weapon down, then they don't need to fear it, at least for the time being. But as long as we're deploying this weapon, there are no countermeasures. Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the wisdom that you've put in your word. And, Father, we depend upon it. We lean on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled Against Christianity, The Church is Politics. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can purchase them at the newly renovated canonpress.com.